Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello and welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. For the first three episodes of this term, we're going to be sharing some talks from our archives on the topic of rhythms of grace, rhythms that help us be sustained in life and ministry with Christ. These talks were first given at the 2018 Pastoral Refreshment Conference by Tony Horsfall. The audio quality of these recordings is perhaps not what we'd usually share with you, but we believe the content is wonderful and helpful, so do bear with it. If you'd be interested in attending a pastoral refreshment conference, booking is now open for our 2023 conferences. You can find out more about these at www.livingleadership.org forward slash PRC. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So a couple of things uh, uh, I want to uh, recommend to you. Uh, first of all, I've gone on and on about midlife, uh, but it, it is such an important transition. And this uh, little book uh, is uh, just a series of 25 Bible readings um, with comment that kind of uh, guide us through that process of transition from the first half of life to the second half of life. I know it's a long time ahead for most of you, but you might want to put it on your shelf just for the time when it comes. Or you might like to do some revision if you feel you're on the far side. <laughs> Think, well, where did I go wrong? That's right, yeah. So that's just uh, two pounds, so well worth it. And uh, uh, here's a book about mentoring, mentoring for spiritual growth. And uh, I wrote it about ten years ago. Um, I think James Lawrence did the foreword for it, so it's worth it for that alone. Um, it's not, now, uh, it's not going to be reprinted. It has been reprinted once before. So I've just bought up some of the remaining uh, copies. So you can have this for £2. That's a bargain as well, actually. Because I want them to go to a good home. No point in being in my garage getting damp and musty. So, um, and it's about the spiritual life and the spiritual journey and how to help people uh, on their spiritual journey. So they're on the table here. Help yourself. And don't forget, if you didn't get a book about Sabbath and you want one, please take one and uh, pass it on too. So, I want to say a thank you to uh, Marcus for the opportunity to be here this week. Uh, I've really enjoyed it, both conferences equally. And uh, I've received so much myself as well, actually, um, because as people have been aware of my own situation, people have been very kind with their words of encouragement and prayer. So I do feel ministered to myself. I don't feel I've just given out and given out. I actually feel um, quite blessed <laughs> by being here. And I thank you for that and uh, for that kindness. I do feel a little sad this morning, actually, though, because um, back home in Yorkshire, in the little um, church that I belong to, um, right now they'll be having a funeral service for one of our dear church members. She will not be... Known to you, 87, she passed away recently, and today's the funeral for her. And uh, Lil is one of those lovely, ordinary, unknown, delightful children of God who was converted 
uh, late in life, in her sixties, a very simple, ordinary Yorkshire housewife. Um, no educational background at all. Uh, and was a coal miner and so on. And she brought her family one of these big terrace houses and things like that. She came to church so shy, so introverted, not used to mixing socially with people outside of her uh, class whatsoever. And, uh, and came to faith. And Lil enriched us so much over the years, uh, particularly with her prayers. And uh, being a small church, we can have open times of prayer. And without fail, uh, Lil would pray every Sunday morning. Not great theology, but very heartfelt. I often wish I had written down her prayers because they were so delightful. And often we would all have a little chuckle. One of the favorite starting off points was, Lord, we're so lucky to be part of your family. <laughs> you can tell how our theology is like that. <laughs> but she felt that sense of privilege of being part of this family. And if you would greet Lil and say good morning to you, you'd get a kiss in return. Just an ordinary servant to God. Her son was actually one of our founding elders, and uh, he came into difficult times himself, and uh, because of personal circumstances, uh, he left the church. A very painful time for us all, for me personally, because he was my best friend, not just my colleague in work, but my best friend. We did many things socially together, and it hurt and wounded me deeply, it wounded all of the church, and it was painful for him as well. So he and his wife and family stopped coming to church. But Lil continued. She never missed a Sunday. And I thought that was amazing, her kind of commitment and dedication uh, to church. Um, as she got older, she got uh, she suffered from dementia, so sometimes she would come to church and a cardigan was all buttoned up the wrong way and there might be a bit of food on her chin. <laughs> From breakfast, and she would often fall asleep as well in the service. But she wanted to be there. She wanted to be there. And she was greatly loved. Latterly, she was in a nursing home and not really aware of people. But just before she died, Stuart actually phoned us and said, Be good if you go and spend some time with my mum. And so uh, we went and prayed with her and sang with her, and she wasn't conscious and uh, released her to the Lord. And that night she died. So today it's her funeral. And uh, Lil reminds me of another lady uh, 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 who was uh, uh, in our church, Vera. Uh, Vera was manageress at the Nika factory, <laughs> which for those of you from down south means she worked, they produced underwear. LAUGHTER <laughs> A down-to-earth Yorkshireman, again married to a miner, uh, smoked like a trooper, <coughs> and uh, it remained her kind of battle throughout her Christian life as she came to faith and grew. I had the great privilege of leading her husband to Christ and then sitting with them as he passed away and then sitting at the bedside as Vera passed away as well, really. And Vera reminds me of another lady, Madeline. Madeline came over from Lancashire. She's used to say, I'm from Lancashire. <laughs> to distinguish herself from the rest of us. <laughs> with, a dry sense of, with a dry sense of humor. Uh, and uh, Madeline, when she knew that she was dying, 
She took us all out for lunch. She said, I want to be there to enjoy it. <laughs> so we all went out for lunch and celebrated her death. He was pushing us But this is church, isn't it? This is why we love it. This is why we do it. We get hurt in the process, but my word, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. And then we're looking at these rhythms of grace, and we're going to just have an overview of John chapter 4. But we do it because of the Great Commission, don't we? Matthew chapter 28. I think those words of Jesus have been imprinted on my heart from being a very young Christian. Uh, knowing that sense that Jesus sends us into the world to make disciples, whether that be cross-cultural, whether it be within our own culture, but that call, that vision to make disciples, to be a disciple and to make disciples. And because we have such a big commission, you know, I, I kind of lived with that great commission in my heart for so many years. In OMF, the strap line was, the speediest evangelization of East Asia's millions. I've been calling that, isn't it? <laughs> Just <laughs> millions, but as speedy as possible. <laughs> and then in mission, there was this great uh, movement in the 1990s as we came up to the millennium. Uh, uh, the go- a church, the gospel for every person and a church for every people by 2000 AD. That was the start of 1990. Isn't that good? <laughs> the gospel for every person and a church for every people grew by the year 2000 AD. As we got near to the year 2000, it was clear we weren't actually going to reach that target, not surprisingly. So they changed it very suddenly to, to the year 2000 and beyond. Just <laughs> 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 a subtle change. <laughs> 2018, you don't hear any more about that slogan whatsoever. <laughs> but sometimes this great commission can feel like, what, what a task that is. How can we possibly do it? Um, the Acts of the Apostles begins with the reminder of Luke's <coughs> Gospel about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And sometimes it feels like, well, okay, Jesus got it going, but now it's up to us. He's gone off to heaven and we're left to do it by ourselves. But actually when you read the Acts of the Apostles, it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Because the Holy Spirit continues that work, but he does it through us and in partnership with us. And I just want us to come back this morning, as we get ready to go back to our own situation, to that sense of partnership, that we are God's co-workers. Uh, because in, in John chapter 4, we're, we're going to watch Jesus in action as he goes about his business and as the disciples are able to observe how he does it, how he wins people, how he draws them to the Father. And he's inviting us into partnership with himself. We don't have to make it happen. 
We have branches in the vine. He is the vine, we are the branch. We only have to bear the fruit. We don't have to produce it. There's a big difference. And the theme of the rhythm this morning is about listening and responding. Listening to what God is doing and responding. And that really takes a lot of the strain out of this great commission and the sense of mission which is in our hearts. Jared Kelly says this, We may say that mission belongs to God, but we interpret our partnership in it not as joyful union, but as responsibility and task. <coughs> mission is trust, not task. Trusting in the prior work of God that we are responding to and working with. We surrender to the whisper of the Spirit, and He, God, takes care of the ultimate outcomes. I want us to leave today with that sense of partnership and this rhythm of listening and responding. So we're going to look over the passage in, in general just now. And the, the first aspect of this, I think, is learning to be open to the Spirit. That actually mission... Evangelism activity begins with an openness to the Spirit and hearing what the Father is saying. In John chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, Now he had to go through Samaria. And the English translation there doesn't actually quite capture what the Greek is saying. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, the Jews didn't normally go through Samaria, did they? They would turn right go round the other side of the Jordan, then come back in left, left at the top, and they've got round Samaria, because they didn't want to put, step, put their feet on Samaria, step foot there. But Jesus, on this particular day, maybe when he woke up, has this sense inside him in his spirit that they were to travel not that normal way, but actually going by Samaria, which must have been quite a shock to the disciples who would not have relished that idea. It was a, Samaria was actually a hostile place to go. And uh, they would have thought he was taking quite a big risk. But Jesus had that sense that he must go through Samaria. One of the things that John points out in his Gospel is that he, he draws our attention to the inner life of Jesus. You don't get that in any of the other Gospels, not really. But John makes this great point, and I've given you some references there, I'm only going to look at two of them, that Jesus was continually tuning in to the Father, hearing what the Father was saying and seeing what the Father was doing. So in John chapter 5, verse 19, the first of those references, Jesus said this, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. That was true even of Jesus. So it's certainly true of us. He can do only what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So he's seeing what the Father is doing, sensing that, and responding to it. Then further on, uh, later on in uh, John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says this, just a second example. It's really worth reading through John's Gospel and, and noting this kind of pattern. Jesus says, For I did not speak in my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say 
and how to say it. What to say, that's one thing. How to say it's another thing. <laughs> so he's seeing and he's hearing. And uh, that sense uh, of that he had to go through Samaria was part of his being guided by the Father. And we too can share in that sense of being led by the Holy Spirit. All who are God's children can hear God's voice and can be led by the Spirit. Paul says that in Romans. Jesus himself said, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. And we have to learn how to hear the voice of God for ourselves. We have to teach other people, by the way, how to hear the voice of God for themselves. That's one of the great privileges of the new covenant. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. From Lil Gatley to Justin Welby, they shall all know me. You can all have that sense that God is speaking to me. I'm often surprised and a bit disappointed actually how many people say to me, God never speaks to me. It's a very common feeling that people have because we haven't taught people how to hear God for themselves. We're all feeling <coughs> on their behalf. I mean, that's a different point. But uh, that sense of hearing the still small voice, the whisper of God, here it is in Isaiah. Isaiah uh, chapter 30, verse 28 there. Uh, just a little verse which I think says a great deal, actually, about being led by God. Isaiah 30, verse 21. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. The little whisper of God that directs our steps. Here I am, I'm coming to a crossroads, I can go left, I can go right. The little voice says, that way, that way. That's the little voice that Jesus was hearing that morning as he woke up. Go through Samaria, go through Samaria. It's just a little nudge, it's just a little impression. You can only hear it if you're kind of still and quiet inside yourself. You're surrounded by too much noise, if your life is too busy, too hectic, if you're kind of in this whirlwind of life and activity. It's very hard to hear the still, small voice of God. But when you hear it, he will guide and direct your steps, sometimes quite tangibly and specifically, sometimes just in a general sense, a general feeling or something. It's what we might call the, the restraint or the constraint of the Holy Spirit. I love the passage in Acts chapter 16, where it... it we, we, we read how Paul was discerning where to go on his missionary journey. He didn't have an itinerary pre-planned. We like itineraries, don't we? And we like to be pre-planned. This is what we'll do on Monday, this is what we'll do on Tuesday, and so on. But actually, the Acts of the Apostles is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the director of operations. So Acts 16, verse 6, Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Frigga in Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit on preaching the word in the province of Asia. It's a new good idea to preach the word in the province of Asia. What's wrong with doing that? Nothing apart from but the fact that the Holy Spirit seemed not to want us to do it. There's a restraint of the Holy Spirit. There's a sense of, I don't have peace about this. It doesn't feel right. The restraint of the Spirit. 
When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Same thing, the restraint. Just didn't kind of work out. It just couldn't happen. They recognized the restraint of the Spirit, and we ought not to go against the restraint of the Spirit. It leads to unfruitfulness. Let's say, so they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's the constraint of the Holy Spirit. That is where I want you to go. We need to develop that kind of attentiveness to God, develop a kind of quiet heart and quiet spirit so that we can actually hear it and then be guided by God. And because Jesus did that, he then encounters the woman at the well. So he has this divine encounter by which he gets up very early in the morning, disciples, maybe 6 a.m. as soon as the sun rises, they walk all morning, six hours, they're tired, Jesus gets there, Sits down by the well, the disciples go off into the town to buy food. Meanwhile, in Sica, this woman has been hanging around all morning till everybody else has been and got their water from the well so she can go secretly alone, not meet people, not have to converse with people, not receive any more abuse from people. And she comes at midday. And lo and behold, to her surprise and disappointment, there's a man sitting there. <coughs> and worse than that, it's a Jewish man, by the way he's dressed. But actually, that's going to be a divine encounter that will change her life, and also the life of the village. Here's this wonderful sense of being led by God to meeting people in whom God is already at work. I love what Tasker says in his commentary on John 4. It is clear that Jesus did not leave Judea with any fixed intention of ministering in Samaria. But the wind of the Spirit blows where it wills, and the true messengers of God are never slaves to fixed programs or prearranged plans of campaign. The freedom of the Spirit to lead us, to guide us. They haven't gone for a Tell Samaria week. It's not every home in Saika crusade. It's actually Jesus just living his life, sensing that prompting of the Holy Spirit, sitting down by the well, <coughs> ostensibly doing nothing. But when that moment comes and the woman arrives, I think his spirit would have leapt inside him. Because I think he would have thought, this is what it's about. God has caused this to happen. Divine encounters. So, let's seek to be open to the Holy Spirit. Let's develop that kind of quiet heart that is able to hear what God is saying. And secondly, to see what God is doing, to be aware of the people all around us. You see, we have a, a posture towards the people who are around us, either of openness, which means 
I want to connect. Or of closeness, which means don't come near. Here's a question for you. How could you tell whether somebody is open or closed? How would you tell if somebody was open? Okay. Yeah, eye contact, first of all. They would, they would look at you. If they're, not, if they're not interested in making contact with you, they'll look the other way. Any, any other way? How can you tell if somebody's open? Yes? They'd be interested in you, not... Yeah, they'd be interested in you. <laughs> How might you know that they're interested in you, though? You've got to gauge this by what you see. Body language. And what is it about body language? If your attitude's closed, your... Your body will be closed, yeah. yeah. That's right, yeah. Somebody might put out their hand to shake your hand. If they don't do that, they can get an idea, okay. Show them mine. Yeah. What about if they've got a big smile on their face? What does that say? It says, I'm friendly, I'm approachable, come near. <coughs> and whether we like it or not, we are communicating something of our openness or our closeness. So we have to also look and see what other people are communicating and, and also know what we are communicating. Jesus shows a radical openness to this woman. There are many things about this encounter which are not correct. Culturally, religiously. And we know later on, verse 27, it's a great shock to the disciples when they come back and they find he's talking to this woman, a Samaritan. They're so confused by it. Nobody says to her, you know, can we help you what you want? And to themselves they whisper, why is he talking to her? Because he's gone right against their cultural norms. He's a man, she's a woman. There's a gender difference there. He ought not to be talking to her by himself alone like that. He's a Jew, she's a Samaritan. There's that ethnic, racial difference and divide. In a sense, that hostility too. And yet he's talking to a Samaritan, a woman at that. He's a devout rabbi. She is maybe not such a moral person. There's a moral gap between them. He is religiously clean. She is considered to be impure. There's a religious difference. And yet Jesus, the man full of truth and grace, is com communicating to this woman acceptance, welcome. And that's how the conversation begins. And that's why when he really opens up her heart and and reveals what is there. She can say, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And she hasn't received that as a judgment upon herself, but as just somebody who's totally aware and yet is still accepting of her. I think as Christian people, you know, we've got a lot of stuff inside us that means that we're actually close to other people. The look of shock, the look of horror, the look of surprise, the look of disdain. The sense of superiority and pride and the them and us kind of mentality. It's not a very attractive kind of posture, is it? He welcomes her. Not only does he welcome her, but he asks for help as well. 
So we have to learn, I think, how to relate to other people and how to see what God is doing in their lives. How open are we? How open am I to other people? Do I see here is a person made by God, made for God, in whom God is at work? Can I see the dignity and the value of every every human being? Or do I see some people as more valuable than others? More worthy of my interest than others? Do I find that there is prejudice in my heart towards certain people? A prejudging of them, in other words. Even a fear towards some kind of people. It is said that within 30 seconds of meeting somebody, we have usually formed our opinion of who they are and whether we want to engage in them. 30 seconds. You see how someone is dressed. You look at the color of their skin. You maybe see their hairstyle, their fashion, as it were. Maybe listen to their voice. Within 30 seconds, your brain has evaluated it all, and it's either said yes, or it says, keep away. And very often that process is prejudiced, because it's already got prejudgments in there, which means when I look at that person, I make a certain assumption. And some people I will write off simply, because I don't like the way that they look. Probably you think you don't have prejudice in your, your heart. You'll be the first human being not to have prejudices. <laughs> I've done a lot of cross-cultural training with people that I had a group once and spent the whole weekend talking to them about culture and about how to adapt to another culture and how to be aware of their own cultural prejudice. And at the end of it, when there's something up, okay, one man said, well, I still think British is best. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't have a good cross-cultural experience. (laughs) We don't always know the prejudice that is there. Sometimes you can see a person and it reminds you of somebody else that you knew in the past who you didn't like and immediately think, not going there. That's the kind of thing that happens. Maybe we're so busy living our purpose-driven life, we don't have actually time to waste anyway. Like the priest and the Levite going down to Jericho, they see the Samaritan at the side of the road. They'd like to help, but actually they've got services at the temple to get to, or wherever it is they're going. They've no time to stop. I'm late, I'm late for a very important day. God spoke to me about even the way that I walk. In my little estate, I'm praying that I'll have opportunities to speak to people in the little estate where we live. So I go out to the post box, I'm living this purpose driven life, I'm walking like this. Can't walk so I've got to get to the post box, catch the post. And if I see one of my neighbors and say, hello, that's it. (laughs) No time for small talk. And God said to me, How are you going to ever get to know your neighbors unless you talk to them properly? I say, I'm so geared up to my purpose-driven life. It feels like wasting time to me. Small talk. 
But sometimes God is in the small talk. Is in the available, and people are watching. They're watching. They're watching us as one of our neighbours. I've not had many deep conversations uh, uh, with him. But a few months ago, the lady across the other side of the road from him, she died. Uh, her husband died during the night, and she came across to get John, her neighbour, and he came to me, and he knocked on the door, and, and it was early in the morning. We hadn't really got the stomach. Fully dressed, he said, You're a Christian person, aren't you? I said, How does he know I'm a Christian person? <laughs> they obviously watch. So he wanted me to go and help this lady. People as landscape, people as machines. There's a, a famous article, an anthropological article, about how we see people. And the writer says, Sometimes we see people as machines. That is, we always see them for the function that they perform. And as long as they perform the function, we don't really notice them. If the function goes wrong, then we'll give them a piece of our mind. So the man who brings my mail uh, most days, do I actually, I mean, I see him every day. I can recognize him in the street. Do I, do I, do I know his name? Do I know anything about him? Probably not. But he comes every day faithfully. Or the... Lady in the supermarket counter, do I actually see people as people? Or sometimes he said, sometimes we see people as landscape. They're just kind of the extras in the film of my life. <laughs> I'm the star of this show. You are just kind of in the background there. You won't be in the credits. You're just kind of yeah, extras in the film. And I don't really see you. And I'm not really interested in you. Actually, it's all about me. I don't have eyes to see other people. It's quite sobering to think about that. How do you see other people? You see them as people made in the image of God, by God, for God, to know God for whom Christ died. That posture, being friendly, non-judgmental, willing to listen, asking for help, random acts of kindness, all that kind of thing. Or sitting at a dinner next to a man I'd never met before and uh, we got talking and he began really sharing quite deeply with me some of his concerns. And he stopped in mid-sentence, actually. And he turned to me and he said, why am I telling you this? I said, maybe it's because I'm listening. Listening is a very powerful tool. All of us long to be listened to, but people never get a chance you listen to. And if you listen, you find that people will talk. Even the quietest people will talk if they feel they've got your attention. And if you ask just a few simple questions, you will find that people will talk. And that's when you begin to get to know who they are and what their needs are. How open are we? Do we have eyes to see the people who are around us? So we hear what the Spirit is saying, we see what God is doing, and then when we get those two things together, we are ready to respond. We can act in faith and obedience. And that's what's happening in John chapter 4, actually, isn't it? Jesus has sensed where he should be, where he should go, sat down with an openness, gets into conversation with the woman, God helps him to point her to her deep need, to be known, 
completely and loved unconditionally. And the woman goes back to her village and tells people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, verse 29, could this be the Christ who's by now worked it out? That he's more than just a prophet, he is the Christ. And he goes on to say this, they came out of the town and made their way towards him, the villagers that are stirred by her testimony. They come towards him. And so he goes on to say, Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. His disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So now Jesus goes from that place of rest into that place of work, into that place of business. So we're not saying to work from a place of rest is to be idle, is to be inactive. <coughs> we're actually saying that rest is the foundation for our work. Steve is a friend of mine, a Baptist minister in South London. I was speaking to him on the phone. He said, Tony, he said, on Friday, he said, I was preparing my sermon and I fell asleep at the desk. But when I woke up, I didn't feel guilty because I remembered what you taught us about resting from a place of work. I said, no, Steve, work is on the place of rest. <laughs> These are the rhythms we can move in and out of rest and work. Intense activity. Harvest time is a busy time. And here there's another rhythm at work, that rhythm of sowing and reaping. And this uh, great movement of God takes place in Samaria. Be expectant about the harvest. Jesus says in verse 35, Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe. For harvest. Some people think because the Samaritans came out of the village and they're all wearing white, it's, it visually looks like a harvest field. But Jesus is saying, if you've got the eyes of faith, you can see what God is doing. There's a harvest to be reaped. You don't have to keep saying, well, it's not time yet, you need to wait a bit more. No, actually, if you've got eyes to see, God is at work all around you. I find this one quite difficult myself because sometimes we are so bombarded by the media and by our own impressions of life in post-Christian Britain, think really people are not interested. You know, churches are undeclined, nobody's bothered about Christianity and so on. Not even worth talking to people. And you can get in that kind of downward spiral. You think, oh, evangelism doesn't work nowadays. But Jesus says, open your eyes and look. Have eyes to see. Look through the glasses of faith, not doubt. Be expectant, the perspective of faith. Be diligent, because sowing and reaping is hard work, and you have to sow before you can reap. Verse 36, Jesus says, Even now the reaper draws his wages, even now he harvests the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Sowing and reaping, one sows and another reaps. That's the same, one sows and another reaps, it's true. Be diligent. Sow the seed. And sometimes that's all we're doing, we're just sowing the seed. It's often said that to come to Christ, people need seven meaningful encounters with people of faith, so that they, they move step by <laughs> step closer. 
I've always found helpful what's called the Engel scale. James Engel developed this kind of way of looking at how people come to faith and the steps that they go through before they actually receive Christ as their Savior. And it's helpful because it reminds you that actually sometimes my conversation will just bring a person a step closer. And then somebody else will interact with them and they'll come a step closer. And something else will happen and they'll come nearer. That's how the villagers, they came out and came towards Jesus. It happened. You, you can actually do a study in John chapter 4 and see how the woman goes through different stages. No time for us to do that. You can see also with the villagers. And people don't come to faith in Christ generally bang like that. Actually, sometimes it's been a process. And we may be one part of that process. We're sowing our seed. Then sometimes we have the fortune to, good fortune and blessing to be there when a person is ready actually to open their heart to Christ. What a joy that can be when you have that privilege. I've had that privilege many times. It's a great joy. I don't think it's any joys compared to that with actually leading that person to faith in Jesus and to assurance of their salvation. Well, verse 38 reminds us, let's not get too carried away from enjoying times of success. Because we've only been part of the process. Verse 38. I send you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Not clear who Jesus is speaking about there. I think he's speaking about John the Baptist personally. Because John the Baptist by his ministry created this spiritual awakening all around. And then Jesus had come and all the followers of John have gone off after Jesus. And I think these, these Samaritans have even been awakened by the ministry of John the Baptist. Maybe he's talking about himself in his own conversation. Maybe he's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. But you see, we reap a harvest not just because of our own work, but sometimes the work of other people. I send you to reap what you have not worked for. You don't have to make it happen. Even harvest is a gift from God. We just give thanks to Him and rejoice for being in the, the privilege of that. And then we need to be flexible, to be inconvenienced. Because when revival starts, the plants have to go out of the window. So the Samaritans ask, we so want to know more about you. Verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. There's that margin in his life. Jesus might have said, well, actually, I'm really sorry, we're on our way to Galilee. I've got a meeting there tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Can't really stay, but maybe I'll come back another time. He'd have missed the opportunity, couldn't he? He can actually respond to what's taking place. Being flexible, be ready, be open to respond. I find that's very exciting, actually. Hearing what God is saying, seeing what God is doing, and then responding. That's manageable for me. I don't consider myself to be a great evangelist, but I do have a heart that wants to be used by God. And I think any believer, if we have a heart to be used by God, God will use us. And I think even those of us in special <coughs> ministry, we need to lead the way by our example. That we are actually open to other people. 
that we are allowing God to lead our steps and give us divine encounters so that we can share our faith. Not kind of professionally, giving evangelistic sermons, but actually in the ordinary course of my everyday life, I'm ready, I'm alert, I'm prepared to give an account for the hope that is within me. Let me tell you just uh, two stories to finish with. One a big one and one a little one. We were privileged, as you know, to work on the island of Borneo. And the story of the church there is a wonderful story. I guess now, at the moment, the size of the church is about 35% of the population. Born-again believers, the church is fantastic. It's actually the story of it is one of the great people movements in the history of the church. It began in 1928 when three Australian men, Hudson Southwell, Carey Tolley, and Frank Davidson, went to Borneo with a burden to reach the Iban people. They went into the interior of the jungles in 1928, built their houses. These were real missionaries. They built their own houses, cleared the ground, traveled up and down the river, translated scriptures for people, and preached the gospel. And after 11 years, not one convert. 1939, the island was overrun by the Japanese. They were imprisoned in internment camp in Kuching, which was the town where we lived. And they were there during the years of the war. During that time, some Christians from the other part of the island of Borneo came over the mountains and shared their faith with the same people that these missionaries had been trying to reach and piqued their interest. When the war finished, Frank Davison actually died in internment camp. But the other two came out, and Hudson Taylor, uh, Hudson Southwell himself, went back to those same regions where they'd worked for 11 years and not reaped anything, and found this amazing openness to people. And in Borneo, people live in long houses. They all, the whole village lives under the same roof. They have their own room, but you, know, you can have 100 doors, and that's like 100 families. So when they make their decisions, they don't decide individually. Put your hand up if you want to become a Christian. They decide village by village. <coughs> so when Hudson Southwell went and preached the gospel after the war was over, he found this tremendous openness, and village after village were converting to Christ. Not in ones and twos, but in hundreds. <laughs> And he went around baptizing them, get them into the kingdom, and then we can teach them. That was his kind of philosophy. Claim them for Christ first. They gave him a nickname. They called him Tuan Sapu in Malay, which means Mr. Sweeping Brush, because he went sweeping people into the kingdom of God. A movement of God is God. And, and we, we just go along with what he's doing. The little story about my own life. <laughs> Christmas time, last Christmas, December, we went to school to see Grant St. George's nativity play. He's one of the wise men. Last year it was the cockerel, this year it's a wise man. Must <laughs> 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 be doing well at school, eh? <laughs> so he's sitting there right on the front row, he's got a crown from McDonald's on his head, and a bathrobe around him tied with a, a rope to look like a wise man. Because he's fiddling with his crown to begin with, and then he, his attention is grabbed by his belt, he's fiddling with his belt, eventually it comes loose in his hand. 
So because we're in the school gymnasium, he starts tying it round the wall bars. <laughs> At which point, mercifully, the teacher came to salvage the situation and retied it looked at him in such a way that says, sit still. <laughs> this big moment came when the three wise men had to circle the, the room on their way to see the baby Jesus. What an impression he did of a man riding a camel. He was the best of the three, the pick of the bunch. <laughs> He's absolutely <coughs> stole the show. I'm so proud of him. <laughs> anyway, when the nativity play is over, <laughs> the children all gone back to get chains and so on, and I'm sitting at the back, standing at the back of the hall, leaning against the wall bars, and there's the gentleman standing over here, also kind of just waiting for the child. And uh, I thought, mm, so that's speedy. But you know, that British reserve is so strong, isn't it, really? You know, there's nobody to introduce you. How do you begin a conversation? It's really difficult. <laughs> so uh, just something rises in me and says, well, you know, just speak to him. So I said to Cross, and I said, they did well, didn't they, the children? And yes, so we got a little... Uh, I said, my George was the one of the kings. Did you see him? Yeah. And we just talked about the, the play. And then he said to me, uh, what do you do then? And I, it's always a difficult question for me. I don't know how to describe to people what I do. So on this occasion, I said, well, I'm like a life coach. I help people to think about their life and take them away for a while, let them think about what's going on in their life and so on. That's very interesting. I'm a coach, he said. Uh, I'm a football coach. And, you know, I train youngsters uh, to play soccer because I, I, I love soccer as well. And, uh, so we got talking about that. And I happened to say to him, uh, and, you know, did you play yourself? And he said, oh, I used to be a professional player. Played for Huddersfield and Bradford and, uh, and Barnsley. Well, that piqued my interest because for a few years I was chaplain at Barnsley Football Club. So I said, oh, I used to be chaplain there. And we knew a few people in common and so on. And then we talked about the value of chaplaincy. And uh, I said to him, you know, there's a lot of mental illness, isn't there, in sport? And it's just come, kind of coming to the surface how important it is to have chaplains and people that listen. And he said, oh, he said, yeah, I just think it's so important. And he said, you know, sometimes in my career when... I got injured and so on. I would pray to God. I would pray to God. We had this wonderful conversation that really lifted my heart and my spirit because I sensed it was a God encounter. It was a God. I didn't lead him to Christ, but I think I brought him another step. And I awoke in him. This conversation awoke in him. That spiritual feeling, that spiritual longing. It was a little encounter. That's all we do sometimes. How exciting that is. I find that really exciting. I can sit in my office writing books, but there's nothing like actually having a conversation with somebody where you think, actually, God is in this conversation. And I want to pray for you, and I want to pray for myself now as we go back from here, that we will be able to work from this place of rest, that we'll not only give out, but we'll receive in so that we can sustain ourselves but also that we'll develop that ability to listen to what God is doing and see where God is at work and then to respond accordingly. See, I think that's achievable and I think it's sustainable. That will not drive you into the ground. In fact, that will excite you because you'll, you'll be motivated. 
Is it possible? I think it's possible. Let's pray together, shall we? Let's pray for you. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus, how he lived in harmony with you, how he heard what you were saying and saw what you were doing, and then responded to the moment, the situation, the opportunity, the open door. We thank you that more the disciples were looking on, they were learning by observation. And as we today sit here, reading your word, thinking about it, Lord, you're teaching us too how to work in partnership with you. Lord, we want to pray in the words of that hymn, Oh, use me, Lord, use even me, just as thou wilt, and when, and where. Lord, we pray as we go back to our situations today, maybe some with excitement, maybe some with a sense of dread. We pray that indeed you will work in our hearts, bring healing to us where there's been pain and brokenness, Lord. Bring hope to us where we've got into despair. But fill us, Lord, with a sense of excitement and expectancy that you are still at work in this world and you still choose to use ordinary, frail, fragile human beings to communicate your love and your grace. We pray and we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders. Or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.